Okay, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, hopefully more folks will be able to make it as, as time goes on here. Um, thank you for the opportunity to present to you all tonight. Um, uh, we think it's a good opportunity to, to, to share what we've been working on in the plan division over the course of the last uh, year, year, couple of years. Um, let's start off with some introductions. Um, I'm Brian Grady. I'm a planner in the comprehensive planning section of the planning division. Uh, I'm Elena Bernardinello. I'm the healthy community planner in the planning division. I'm Ben Zellers. I'm in the transportation planning section. What we're going to present tonight is what we term uh, tools for physical and fiscal fitness. Um, and actually, and one more tool that maybe doesn't, doesn't fall in that category, but um, overall, we wanted to provide a summary of these, of these four tools uh, in a real brief amount of time, uh, we think, and, um, and then we can, at the end, we can do some questions. Um, I want to mention that um, we do have a handout here at, at your places that has a summary. It's a good kind of uh, take-home brochure of the four different tools, contact info for each of us, and, and project websites if they exist. Um, and if you do any questions, this can be a pretty heavy presentation over the course of the next 40 minutes. You can take probably a deep breath at the end of this. Uh, feel free to contact us with any questions following up to this meeting, one-on-one uh, -on -one meeting, phone call, email, whatever you like to do. We just wanted to kind of give an overview tonight, but it really is just a, a real high-level overview of what are, what are some pretty deep projects. Um, so we have about an hour, I believe. Um, We've timed this out to be about 40 minutes, so we will um, have about 20 minutes for questions and, and discussion at the end. Please do hold your questions and comments till the end so we can kind of uh, get through some of these things. I also want to mention um, we're going to cover four tools, and really the, the last two tools, the fiscal impact model and the urban footprint um, scenario modeling uh, program, uh, are really we're really led by Catherine Cornwell, our director of the planning division. Uh, she really took the initiative to seek out these tools and also seek funding to bring to bring uh, to help fund these projects and bring them to the city of Madison. So I wanted to, to highlight that. For really, it was a, was a reason for why we're here today. And then also, this has been a team effort across uh, the planning department. I also want to thank um, Donna Collingwood and Ryan Jolie for their help on this presentation. Again, it was a, it was a team effort. So with this, uh, we'll start off with uh, just a quick overview of the four tools. The first one we're going to discuss tonight is the Neighborhood Indicators Project. Um, this looks at past trends, collects data for, from, for the past. And right now, Malia will want me to point out the, uh, the temporal nature of the four tools. They, they collect data over four different time periods. Neighborhood Indicators looks at past trends. The Active Living Index, which Melina will also present, uh, looks at, tries to analyze present conditions and quantify present conditions. And then up next, we'll, after that, will be the Fiscal Impact Model and Urban Footprint, which are uh, scenario modeling tools and look to future, the future and kind of quantify uh, future scenarios. For each of the four tools, we'll keep it simple. We'll give an overview of the tool and discuss how they can be applied. And with that, we'll jump into our first tool, the Neighbor Indicators Project. Melina. Thank you. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, the Neighbor Indicator Project, you might be, some of you are familiar already, uh, started in 2016 in some way on a discussion in this room, and has been part of 2008, launched the first edition in 2009. Uh, the main uh, function of this tool is practically asking, responding to this question, has the quality of life in my neighborhood improved? And the Neighborhood Indicator Project is practically designed to collect historic data. The initial project was to have a possibility to trace longitudinally how a neighborhood is improving in some way. And uh, the structure of the indicator per se is combined by six 
indicators which are community action housing quality, you can read through them. Um, the main point of this is to monitor across time certain variables. They are combining those indicators. There are 45 variables. They are collectively annually by the APL, La Paz Population Lab at UW-Madison. They are practically administering this um, tool for us. Uh, the variable are among those variables, 15 are just social economic or social demographic variables from the census, but the other 30 is, and there are 30 of them, are collecting year by year, and those are the ones we generally use to understand trends. Um, so far, we have at this point seven years of, of data, and it's really the time in which we can start to use it heavily. That was the initial process, has been carried over for seven years now, is really ready to use. Um, and the function, the main function for which is suitable for this tool is comparative analysis, comparative analysis across time. Uh, the strength of this particular project has different components. Uh, there are geographic scale. Uh, the, neighborhood was the project was designed to protect sorry, present data and collect data at two different geographic scales. One are the planning district, and the second one are the neighborhood association. Those two kind of boundaries are not the same. I want to ask you, do you notice anything? I can't hear you. <laughs> uh, that sometimes, not all the times, well, the main difference here that I want to highlight, and I want to highlight it because of the usage of it, the planning districts are covering the whole city why the neighborhood association boundary are not because not every area has a neighborhood association so i want to highlight this because it has to be clear that depending on the project you are working on one is more appropriate than the other but not all of them are appropriate for everything so that has to be understood there has been um, some confusion at some point so i thought to share it with you and see if you are able to notice it you are not the only one that didn't notice at the first glance so that is one of the strengths, but also sometimes a limitation of this tool. It has to be clear which project people are working on. We have 62 planning districts covering the whole city and 96 neighborhood associations so far. Uh, the neighborhood uh, indicator projects also present the data in different format. One is mapping, like you see here. Uh, annually, we release a summary, and there are multiple maps that are coming for each variable and for each neighborhood. Each neighborhood is going to also put together as a neighborhood profile. So the data is, is released generally in different format. Um, this is one of the other format. We release data in, as a chart, and this is one example of a chart of one variable, which is parent education with no high school diploma or GED, across time, like you can see as a time series, and between three neighborhoods. So this is really a comparative analysis, very effective, very easy to use as a tool in the website. The other format is the tabular data. This is not designed to make you read the, no the number of data, but just to show you how it comes out. This is a comparison between the same neighborhood, between three different time non-consecutive that you can compare data for. This is really a trend analysis you can run for one specific neighborhood if you are interested in. Uh, who can use it uh, and how it can be used. The Neighbor Indicator Project was designed to be a tool to identify neighborhood emerging trends and target area where we see something that needs attention. Uh, it's also, though, a data-driven decision-making tool. 
it helps decision makers or even the community to prioritize and sometimes justify the allocation resources. Who can use it? Practically everybody because it's a web interface tool is available on the website and community members or planning department, we know the housing authority have been using it, some educators ask us for it, grant writer apparently are using quite heavily and also decision makers. Uh, we are ready to move in a second tool that we are presenting tonight. This tool is designed to show present condition. This is a practically a constantly updated tool. It's not designed to create practically a snapshot. It's always constantly updated. So considering the fact that the planning infrastructure doesn't change every day, but every maybe two or three months there is an update. So that's really a real-time kind of data. We share it. It's very data loaded this kind of tool and is designed substantially to understand how conducive to active living a place is. This project came into being in 2015 as a result of the um, American Planning Association grant called Plan for Health. We were awarded to this grant in collaboration with CARPSI and uh, now the association, National Association is looking at City of Madison very closely because of the power of this tool. We already presented this tool through them at the Active Living Research Conference, which is one of the national more representative for the combination between planning and health, and we are going to show how. Um, but also because we are one of the few that are able to put together this, quite, this kind of strong, um, heavy data uh, interactive tool available for everybody. Uh, we are measuring here substantially mobility in some way and three main elements of it. Is based on current data, as I was already uh, anticipating, and is designed to have in three components. Is practically looking at walkability, bikeway system accessibility, and transit system accessibility. Uh, those are the three main components. They are underpinned by seven subcomponents. We are going to see more in detail what they are. Um, the main point of this tool is designed to, to run descriptive and comparative analysis. And we are going to show, I'm going to show you how. Uh, I want to highlight one detail though. You heard Tommy, me talking before about uh, indicators. I'm talking about an index now. You might be also familiar with score, like the what score. Does any of you know the difference? between an indicator, an index, and a score. They are not the same. They are not the same. <laughs> and the thing is, an indicator is just giving you an indicator of something. It's not measuring anything. An index, and that's what we're going to see here, this is an index. It's a combination of different variables. There are put together for a specific reason, and I'm going to show you why sometimes we do it this way, and that's designed by research and researcher they are running analysis and understanding on this field of planning and health. But in this particular case, it was also driven by the transportation uh, people. They generally do a lot of heavy analysis to understand how to design new transportation system. So the three main components of mobility in this index are the walkability, as I said, and the subcomponent are the intersection density, population density, destination density. We are going to enter a little bit in detail about that. The point I want to highlight here is those three components are not weighted equally. Walkability is more important for mobility and for equity and for health than the transit system or the biking system. 
So there is a particular algorithm you use to weight these three components differently and the subcomponent as well. This is the active living score. This is the number we associate based on how the index responds. And we are going to see the geographic co coverage of that. So when we look at the walkability and the walk score that probably everybody is familiar with, there is one detail you might have seen that goes from 0 to 100. This score is also designed to go 0 from 100. Do you notice anything? Yes, stop at 76. Why? Because the walk score is not really a 0 to 100. It's a mathematical stretch. And they design it that way for their own purpose, but we decided methodologically not doing that because we don't want to create a fake gold standard that everybody refers to. Every place, even the best in Madison, has room for improvement. And we decided to show what the real score is. This is also a subscoring system that is giving a score as well to those subcomponents you see in the index. They are coming out with a specific number as well. And the reason why we do that is because those subcomponents are the one where we can have infrastructure intervention. If we need more destination for certain places because that's going to raise the walkability score, that's where some places have to be intervened on. If we need more bike lane, that's where the other component is going to tell you where the number is. I want to highlight this part, the destination density I briefly mentioned. reason of this is this active living index, the way it's designed right now, is designed to be measured and be linked to health and is designed to be, to be linked to the health of everybody. But we know that people interact with the built environment in a different way, so this index is going to be break down and in a way that can be helping understanding if a place is conducive to active living for children or for older adults. And this particular component is the one that can give us the flexibility to do it. This is what you're going to see when you open up the web interface. Is ArcGIS online based? Is available for everybody already? Well, so we are launching it tomorrow after you have given us your feedback. And um, this is what you're going to see on the right side is the map. If you see it as a color map, the score is reflecting through the color, but the number is going to be assigned to certain area. And the part on the left, right, is what the uh, map is going to tell you when you click on it, and this is, there is this pop-out that gives you the score of that particular area and the sub-score of each of those components you can see. So people can understand, for example, in this case, this particular area scores 47.5, but if you look at the sub-score, it's telling you the destination density is supposed to be scoring 40 maximum, is scoring 8. So this place doesn't have too many places to go. That in some way the way to read it. Okay? Any question? Momentarily. <laughs> how I, I'm not sure how this became populated. You know, how, how did you populate this system is a huge question that I have. I'll hold it at the end. Okay. okay. Fair enough. Uh, this part of the destination feature that was mentioned before is the one we are going to link to health. The way it's been designed has practically clustering all the destinations possible. They are conducive to walking. 
as a primary or secondary destination and highlighting destinations that are conducive to walking because not all the destinations are places you would go by walking even if they are in front of your house. And so we put all the data set to have and focus only on those. Primary destinations are those that we are going to use potentially every day and if they are there by default in our environment, that's where people are by default walking to it or biking to it. Other are necessary only in certain season, for certain reason, for certain time in the day or certain time in the year. And so even if they are there, are not necessarily promoting walking like the other three groups. So there are five domains and they are embedded into it. Those are the ones I'm going to use to play around to focus on different age groups. The strength of this uh, um, project was uh, designed to be able to be linked to health outcome. We were very lucky in this coalition to have UW Family Medicine collaborating with us. They were able to show and share with us a huge data set for health outcome, very difficult to find at the block group level. And they did it because they are very, care, very keen to understand childhood obesity in particular. So. I run an analysis, a statistical analysis, to see if the active living index is correlated to any health outcomes and also if it's able to predict any variability in the health outcome. Uh, this is a preliminary analysis, it's unadjusted, but we find a very high correlation of the active living index and the prevalence of childhood obesity at the block group level across the county. And when run it is a regression, is also telling me that the active living is able to predict variability in the percentage of the prevalence of childhood obesity and is a quite large variability and needs to be adjusted but it's quite promising and among those three components that constitute the active living index the walkability score is the one that has the larger effect. Who can use the active living index uh, and how it can be used? It can be used for community engagement, uh, or it can also be used for city or county or neighborhood planning. Because one of the strengths of this index is the scale. The scalability of this index is a very particular one. You can plug your, in, in, uh, your address and have an active living score at the street level, at the address level, but also we are able to put it together at the municipality level because it's county-wide data and um, at the neighborhood planning district. So that's going to give us the possibility to link the neighbor indicator and the information from this active living index using the same scale. Yes? There is a little question here. Uh, how do you imagine it being used for community engagement? Okay. can talk about that later. <laughs> Perfect. I'm keeping the two. Um, who can, be, can use it? Uh, any community member can use it and maybe that partially responds to your question. Uh, community members are free. We already shared with a couple of uh, three community that we are part of this active living index in. They start to use it. They start to understand how the built environment is complicated. It's very complex. And when people think about walkability, they generally think about sidewalks. That's not the only thing they have to think about. And decision makers, of course, they are maybe more used to look at different sets of data. Planners, of course, we are going to use it now at some point for the complaint. Uh, business community might be interested on too. And healthcare providers, we are generally out of the picture in all of this conversation. They can use it too. Uh, Substantial is an assessment tool, but it's also a framework. 
that sometimes is a larger concept and is a framework for health and equitable built environment. And with this, I'm passing the microphone to Brian. Thanks, Melina. Um, and those for, uh, for those of you that just joined us uh, more recently, we're going to hold questions till the end. We are creating a queue, right, Ben? We're creating a queue over here, so once we're done, we'll be calling people in order. <laughs> Thank you, though, for your interest. Um, up next, uh, we'll talk about the fiscal impact model. This was um, developed for the Pioneer neighborhood, and its intent is to estimate city revenues and expenditures uh, from different development patterns. How this project came about uh, really all kind of traces back to the Department of Housing and Urban Development's Sustainable Communities uh, Grant Program. Uh, back in 2011, uh, our region, Capital Region, it's termed here, uh, this was led by CARPC, the Capital Regional Planning Commission, but our region was selected for a $2 million regional planning grant uh, through this HUD program. Um, that was involved, that, that program did a lot of things for our area, BRT study, some market study, um, overall is trying to advance sustainability in our region. Um, and so because we were one of those communities, those, those grantee, uh, grantee communities, um, when Smart Growth America received funding more recently, just in the last couple of years, they looked to apply this project, this fiscal impact model they're looking to develop to the HUD grantee communities. So that led, us, that led them to us. And we were actually the first uh, city or region to pilot this program. I think now they've completed the, the project in maybe about 10 or so uh, communities. Smart Growth America uh, also worked with RC Elco, which is a, a fiscal impact analysis and other uh, type firm. Uh, Smart Growth America, I should note, is a, it's a national nonprofit. They're based out of Washington, D.C., and they advocate for, for efficient development, as, as their name implies. What they're looking to accomplish with this project is really improve upon uh, the old model for doing fiscal impact analyses. Uh, the, the more traditional method was to, to do an, what's called an average cost model, where basically if we have a community and we're looking at um, entertaining a development proposal that's going to bring in 100 new homes, and we want to look at the, identify the costs associated with that compared to the revenues that the development would bring, we would basically do this. We would take um, our, whole, our city budget and we divide it by our population and figure out what are the costs per person. We'd apply that per capita cost to this new development. Uh, figure out the revenue and then see if this makes sense to, for us to do the project or not. So basically what it, what it does is development A and B in the slide here will really be treated equally, but really we know that uh, the density and location of development has an impact on city costs primarily. It also has an impact on revenues, but it does have an impact on, on city expenditures. And so for this project, we're attempting to quantify, kind of break this down a little bit, trying to quantify some of the costs. And so costs do vary by density. Um, early on, we're trying to figure out what, which are those costs that vary by density and how can we quantify them. I'm going to touch on kind of two topic areas under, under this heading. One, there's those costs that, that really kind of apply to a, or dictated by a service radius. A fire station is a prime example of this. A fire station's kind of service area is really their response time. Where can they get places in, in four or five, six minutes, whatever it might be. But really, once you get beyond that service area, if we have, a, say, a proposal for development beyond that, then we can't serve it, serve it as effectively by the fire department. We may then need a new fire station, which has some pretty big um, upfront costs associated with it, along with the ongoing costs. 
And so in this case here, we want to, where we have fire stations, we want to use, use them to their, to their maximum potential. We want to use the capacity. So basically, if we have a station we want to use, have as much development in that service area as possible. Another example is uh, thinking about like a street frontage. This is how costs vary by, based on density. And this can apply to roads and then the utilities underneath the roads, water, sanitary sewer, and storm. So if you think about where you live and the street and the pipes out in front of where you live, uh, obviously your tax dollars are helping to, helping to fund those utilities over the long term. Developers install the utilities. We're on the hook for maintaining them over the long term. And so what we want to have is more development funding the, funding the infrastructure out in front of that in front of that development. If you have lower density development, there's obviously more infrastructure uh, with less funding that going towards it. And I should mention the other costs of the city budget are really, in this case, allocated on more of a per capita basis. The old approach, we didn't have a, a good mechanism to, to really uh, quantify those costs uh, for this project. Where we applied it, uh, we applied it to the Pioneer Neighborhood Development Plan area. This is on the city's west side. Uh, this map shows the different uh, neighborhood development plan or NDP areas in the city. Uh, the Pioneer neighborhood is about 1,400 acres. It's just outside the Beltline. It's about a mile west of Westtown. Uh, landmark is the really tall UW um, uh, antenna, the tower that has communications uh, facilities on top of it. Um, basically, it's, again, just outside the Beltline. It's largely undeveloped today. Um, but it does, uh, for an undeveloped area, have a lot of infrastructure in place. And that's why we chose to, do the pro to the mo run the model for this area. Uh, there's a lot of road infrastructure, given the fact that there's some regional roads that kind of come together. We're just outside the Beltline, very near uh, West Town. Uh, and then um, to move forward to the land uses, uh, these are the land uses that were set forth in the Pioneer Neighbor Development Plan. So this plan was done. In 2004, this was a real generalization of, the, of that plan, but has a real wide variety of land uses. And actually, for a plan that was developed back in 04, 12 years ago, it actually was pretty progressive, and it really encouraged more intensive development out here. And one way to take advantage of that is when, um, as part of the, uh, the city's bus rapid transit plans we have right now, if BRTs are implemented, it would extend, it could extend out to West Town. And then the future, this will be many, many years or decades in the future, there could also be a leg that extends out into the Pioneer neighborhood, which would also allow for more capacity. So again, if we're going to look at a, a project that's going to, going to compare different intensities of development, we want to have an area that can actually support a wide range of densities. And here, given the land uses, given the, the location of the structure and possible BRT in the future, here we thought this place where you really could increase density over the long term. To jump into the scenarios, uh, we have five scenarios total. We'll start off with the first three, which are the base, the low density, and the compact scenario. Um, oops. So the base scenario basically just illustrates what's in the Pioneer Neighborhood Development Plan. If you take that plan, calculate all the recommendations, you get this amount of development. We compare that in these first two scenarios here to a low-density scenario which takes that same amount of development that we show in our plan and we apply it to an area that's, that's 1,000 more acres. So basically stretching this out, it gets more low density. We're also going to pair that, compare that base scenario to a compact scenario which applies the same amount of density on just 900 acres. So we shave off 500 acres there. So this basically we're just taking the geography and stretching it, uh, compact, contracting or stretching it. 
We also want to do is compare two scenarios where, because in our case, we're probably not going to stretch the planning area out. We can't do that. We may not compact it. But we may want to look at intensifying uh, those current plan recommendations. We look at a base plus 50% and a compact plus 50%. In the base plus 50%, we take what's in that base plan, and we basically make it 50% more dense. So we take that same amount of development, we times it by 1.5 to get a larger amount of development on that same geography. So density is going to go up a little bit. The most aggressive scenario is a compact, compact plus 50%. Here, we take that increased amount of development and apply it to a more compact geography. So we're just testing out uh, basically different densities. To kind of look at some of these concepts on the ground, I'll take a look at both one example for the revenue side and for the expenditure side. On the revenue side, here's an example of two houses on the west side of Madison, two, two properties on the west side of Madison, to look at how values, how revenue can depend on, on density. The example on the left is a, so both, both properties are valued at $400,000. That's their total assessed value uh, improvements in land. On the left, you see a, a property that is, has a, is on a 4,800-square-foot um, 4, lot. On the right, we have a 1,700-square-foot lot. Well, if we compare these two density types to a one acre apply based on the left, you'd have nine, nine houses on one acre. It would generate for the city $34,000 in revenue to the city. Example on the right, apply to a one acre of, of lots that size, it would generate $10,000 per acre, so about three times uh, less. Then on the expenditure side, this is an interesting analysis, a lot of information on here. Let's talk afterwards or, or a different time if you want to study this in more detail. This is very complicated stuff. But here we take a look at how road length varies per capita. So what this is showing, kind of how, how they did this here, is Smart North America took some 40-acre snapshots of the city. We're, they're using GIS to do this. But they take a snapshot of 40-acre areas across the city, and they tell you about the amount of development in that 40-acre snapshot with the amount of road infrastructure. They plotted on, on, on a graph here. What you have is that this demonstrates how, as density increases, road length per capita decreases. So basically, as you're more dense, you share the roads more. more. There's less, less roads per person. This is important for two reasons. For one, it, um, when we do these different scenarios, like for a more intensive scenario or, or less tense, intensive scenario, we can basically estimate it road length based on different densities. So that, that's a key point. So we can run different scenarios without having to redo a, a neighborhood plan and figure out how many roads will be associated with that kind of development. It also helps us ascertain what the costs are for the different scenarios. And now to the results. So first we have our first three scenarios, the base, the low density, and the compact. Before I get into this, I want to kind of see the parameters here. So what I'm going to show here are all, this is all, this model picks up at the time of build-out. So whether it's 30 years out, 40 years out, 20 years, we're not sure. But when this area builds out, this is when this model really starts. And that's, these are annual figures going forward. So for the base scenario, which is our plan, um, it shows that on a per acre basis, this area, when you take Revenues minus expenditures, it would leave us with $1,500 per acre. We're in the black here um, for the, for the 1,400 acres of this of this uh, Pioneer neighborhood. For the low density scenario, there'd be about $600 $600 per acre bringing in a surplus, and then for the compacts, it's about $2,300 per acre. So all three are positive. That's good. 
and some of the examples from other communities that Smart Club America worked on, some of these were negative. So here they're, they're all positive. And then uh, obviously the base does pretty well, $1,500. The compact is, is more efficient, $2,300 per acre. Also keep in mind in that compact scenario, we're doing this on just 900 acres. So there's 500 acres left over that could either generate more revenue or could be reserved for a different use. So that, that value there is actually uh, very positive on, on, on less acreage. Now look at the next two scenarios. So here's our base again. For the base plus 50%, it really comes up to be about the same as the base. I think what, uh, what kind of dictates this is there are, in the, when you add more development, there's more people, obviously. And some of these costs are allocated not based on density, but they're based on per capita costs. So um, our salaries, a police department, that's, that's based on per capita. So if you had just more people, you're going to have some more costs and not get the value. And then for the compact, plus 50%. So, again, more development on, on less acreage. It's supposed to be $2,900 per acre. So, again, this is very intensive, but there's also, also a lot of people to serve uh, for that. But, again, overall, all of them come out positive. They all net for this 1,400-acre about $2 million total. And um, we think that it's generally accurate. But right now, you really are asking, are we really able to protect the future, especially going out 20 to 30 years? You think I'm crazy up here? Explain these numbers. Um, I say that sometimes we are able to predict the future. Um, the example here is obviously. Um, thank you for the, for the laugh and the sound and the laugh track. But um, obviously, when, in Back to the Future, they looked out 30 years. They jumped forward to 30 years, fall of 2015, actually. And uh, we do have hoverboards today. Uh, they don't fly, and they do uh, tend to catch on fire at times. But but we can predict the future at times. Hopefully, if our calculations are correct, we can predict the future a little bit, and we can make sure we're planning for inefficiency. It hasn't happened yet. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ben. Thanks, Brian. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a little bit about Urban Footprint this evening. Um, urban Footprint uh, has been funded with a federal TIGER grant um, with city matching funds as well. Um, it's a model that's been used in um, other regions of the country, Columbus, Ohio, um, Honolulu, uh, some regions in California as well. The difference with our uh, iteration of the model here in Madison, though, is that we're going to be able to do analysis at a much smaller scale at the parcel level, whereas these other places um, have been at the block level or you know, five-acre square level. So broadly speaking, Urban Footprint is a growth scenario modeling tool. It's to analyze the impacts of different styles of growth, um, different styles being uh, you know, suburban on the left on through urban uh, residential development in the middle, and then downtown uh, urban development on the, on the right-hand side. And it does this through six different modules uh, within the tool, and those modules are public health, transportation, emissions, energy and water use, land consumption, and fiscal impacts. And these scenario modules will um, measure change in each of those six items from the existing base conditions. So go into a little bit of detail about uh, those six modules, first one being public health. Uh, public health will account for demographics, 
walkability in terms of intersection density, destinations, and dwelling unit density. Um, building use mix, so mix of uses. And then transportation mode, um, active transportation versus more passive uh, transportation like driving your car. Those um, metrics flow into uh, some of the components there in the middle, um, which is minutes spent in cars, minutes of moderate and vigorous activity, and then percent or average BMI and percent uh, overweight and obese. And then in turn, those flow down to active transportation and health-related, active transportation and related health conditions. Um, so really this module is about um, people and how the places that people live in can impact their health. Second module is transportation. Um, this module will look at transit, uh, biking and walking, active so active modes of transportation, and then uh, you know regular car transportation as well. Um, the major metric coming out of this uh, this component, this module, will be vehicle miles traveled. Um, so this will generate various VMT measures. Uh, what it doesn't necessarily do is allow us to do traffic impact analysis. So while it, while it will come up with um, VMT numbers, it doesn't assign those to specific routes, so it won't necessarily tell us what intersections might be, become congested, um, just the increase or potentially decrease in VMT based on the, on the scenario that is created. The third module is emissions, um, and emissions are primarily related to um, transportation uses and power generation. The fourth module is energy and water use, um, and again, this is something that can vary on, based on the style of de urban development or uh, suburban development. So more suburban development tends to generally use uh, a little bit more water and energy. And then as you progress through the spectrum, um, towards denser downtown-style uh, development, um, usually the uh, energy and water use uh, reduces through that, through that spectrum. Uh, the fifth module is land consumption. Um, this module will look at how many acres of uh, land transition from rural farmland uh, to suburban development, and then also how much growth would occur in redevelopment areas versus greenfield development based on these scenarios as they're uh, analyzed. Uh, the sixth module uh, will look at fiscal impacts, and this uh, will pull in a lot of the information that Brian had mentioned has already been done uh, for the smart growth fiscal impact analysis. Um, and I should also mention that the uh, health impact analysis uh, component will pull in a lot of the active living data and information into that, that piece. So this uh, urban footprint tool will pull together a lot of uh, projects and research that the city has already performed for these other components. Um, but for fiscal impacts, it will not only look at the municipal fiscal impacts uh, related to the smart growth study, but also start to look at household uh, fiscal impacts. So what are some fiscal impacts that households would experience um, based on where they're located within the city. So if you're in the downtown area with good transit service, um, you might not have to own a car, and so that would have uh, less of a fiscal impact on your, on your household. So broadly speaking, Urban Footprint uh, creates a base map of existing conditions um, that will include things like uh, land use, 
um, mix of land uses, uh, employment density, uh, dwelling unit density. And then changes in terms of land use and transportation. Also policy and technology get applied to those base conditions to create a future scenario. And once a series of future scenarios have been created, analysis can be uh, done, a comparative analysis can be done on those, on those different scenarios. And these changes can be painted, painted on at, as I mentioned, the parcel level, so you can get a very detailed level of uh, scenario development for uh, these, these urban footprint scenarios. We can also, if we look at a very large area, perhaps the whole city or maybe even all of Dane County can um, aggregate those into, into block types um, as well to be able to allow us to do scenarios a little bit more quickly um, at a larger scale. So this is a, an example map of urban footprint as it's been implemented in, a, in another place, another community. Um, this is not a Madison map, um, but just an example of how it, how it works in terms of painting scenarios. Urban footprint is a map-based tool, so all of this is done through an online tool. Um, this is a painting of existing conditions, mapping of existing conditions, and so you can see it. At the block level in this, in this instance, there are different land uses that are, are painted on existing conditions. And then to create a scenario, this community painted on changes to land uses. So this might be a redevelopment scenario that this community would be expecting to uh, carry out in the future. Um, that they can also add, in this case they did add, uh, you can see in the green lines with the, the pink dots, uh, a new transit system. So. In this scenario, it would look at how that transit system would interact with the uh, planned redevelopment. And then those changes are merged with the base conditions to create a future scenario. And this can be done multiple times to create different scenarios to uh, perform a comparative analysis. One thing to emphasize that this, even though this is a mapping tool, a map is not really the final product of this tool. Final product would be um, a comparative report. Um, this, in this instance, it's a summary chart. Uh, this is an example from a project that is in Columbus, Ohio, where urban footprint has been used before. Um, these comparative um, metrics are included in this chart across the modules that Columbus had chosen to um, include in their instance of urban footprint. Um, so what this will allow us to do, what it allowed uh, Columbus to do, is to evaluate the development patterns um, and make decisions about how we can grow collectively um, and how those decisions can impact the planning area, whether it's citywide or a specific neighborhood. I, I do want to emphasize that this is not really for specific individual development projects or you know, a block or two. Um, so there won't be a, an urban footprint um, report as part of a redevelopment project. This is really for neighborhood-based um, on up to city or county scale. Um, so what this really allows uh, us potentially to do is to kind of create a municipal development pro forma for different types of development. When developers propose a project to the city, uh, typically they'll be looking at um, one thing in their pro forma, and that's whether or not their, their project is going to create a profit for them. When we consider urban development, we have to
take into account a lot more than just the financial impacts. We have to consider things like impacts on the transportation system, impacts on public health. Um, this tool will allow us to take all those other impacts into account in addition to fiscal impacts of development. So the first uh, test set of test cases for urban footprint, and this was part of the original Tiger grant, is that we would use um, a series of test areas to look at how this tool is works in, in Madison and how we can calibrate it to use in Madison. Um, the three areas that we'll be using it, this tool for are the um, west uh, planning area from West Town Mall um, out to University Research Park 1, east towards University Research Park 1. Then in South Madison along the Park Street Corridor, a little bit to the east and west of the Park Street Corridor. And then generally in the East Town Mall area and along East, east Washington Avenue out to the interstate as well. Um, these three areas correspond to uh, areas that are planned for future bus rapid transit. And so this um, TIGER is a, is a federal transportation uh, grant program, so this really ties into developing scenarios in concert with bus rapid transit planning. Um, urban footprint is scalable, so if these test scenarios prove out and this tool works well for um, Madison, we think that it will. Um, we could use on, move on to using it in different instances. Could be neighborhood uh, plans, neighborhood development plans in the periphery, or potentially uh, could be used citywide. And then also we have um, in our uh, compilation of data included data for the entire county. So with regional buy-in from other municipalities and um, regional planning organizations, this could be used as a tool to um, compare methods of growth uh, across regional boundaries as well. So overall, Urban Footprint uh, will, will be able to provide us some hard numbers for comparison of different styles of development, different styles of growth, and it will quantify the impacts of those growth patterns on fiscal, health, transportation, and all those other factors that I mentioned um, at the beginning of the presentation. And we think this is really becoming increasingly important for both engagement with public and then also values-based decision-making by the City Council, the Planning Commission, and other uh, planning bodies in the community. So with that, we can open it up for questions for Question. any of the four components. Um, whether it's uh, active living or fiscal impact or... Alder Cheeks. This is, uh, this is really exciting. Thank you for the presentation today. Um, <clears throat> so having data is a powerful thing. It's, uh, it's very different from having anecdote. Um, uh, I encourage you to challenge this premise or push back, but um, what you're proposing, what this tool is going to allow us to do is... Um, is be is to explore being significantly transformative with our decision making um, and make really big impacts in our in our uh, neighborhoods and it might be the case that people like things the way they are, right? Um, as an alder, I think uh, people are interested in moving their their community forward in 
um, very bite-sized chunks, really iteratively, really in a way that uh, oftentimes change is most comfortable when it looks very much like present day. Um, how, how do you have success rolling out, uh, you know, plans that that are highly transformative? I mean, how, how do you how do you look forward and, and hope have hope about how this can be implemented successfully? Um, well, I guess one thing to emphasize is that urban footprint is really a tool. It's not a by any means a replacement for a planning process. Um, it's not really a, a, doesn't really generate a plan itself. So it's a tool for analysis. So we could. Um, if we're working within, a, within an existing neighborhood, um, use it to analyze you know, some very small-scale changes that uh, the neighborhood might propose um, and compare that to um, larger-scale changes, ask that what-if question, um, what would the impacts be if we went a step further. Um, then it will allow us to present some actual predictions or potential results for the neighborhood to make those comparisons. So it'll really provide more information for people to make um, those judgments, whereas right now that might be a little bit more nebulous mm -hmm. um, and, and therefore you know, uncertainty might create um, nervousness. Um, so I think this will be a tool for us to um, kind of explain and compare impacts of uh, different potential styles and, and densities to, of development. So we don't necessarily you know, have to go ahead with transformative high-density developments in, in specific areas. It will just allow us to compare the differences between various styles of development. Yeah, I think... I I think and I hope that you're right. I mean, having good data to be able to build a framework for uh, uh, setting expectations, I think, allows, hopefully, uh, allows neighbors to be more comfortable with maybe um, being as bold as maybe they'd like to be, but it seems scary in the absence of a framework of understanding. So, cool. Thank you. Alderama. Most sort of started me. So you sort of answered the question I was thinking about, but as you answered it, I thought of more questions. So you're saying that this is a tool that's not a substitute for planning, but so far I've seen it being used as uh, in modeling, say, like the Madison in Motion, which then creates sort of these models like, oh, this could be like this, and this could be like that. And then, but those neighborhood corridors aren't being planned. And, and so there is somewhat of a disconnect between just doing these models for these sort of these test cases and then what people might come in our neighborhoods and go, well, you've already planned out East Washington and where was I? Or, you know, South Side or whatever it is. And so how do we make sure that they're communicating and because it seems easier to feed data to a model than it is to engage in the daily grind of a two-year, a year process to get neighbors and other stakeholders involved in kind of envisioning a corridor or a neighborhood. Yeah, well, I guess first thing to mention is we're still building the tool so that while there were some comparative um, scenarios developed for Madison Motion that wasn't using urban footprint yet. Um, but in the future, urban footprint, I think, will, will be used within planning processes. So the, the idea is not to um, necessarily kick off a planning process with 
having already created scenarios. It would be to um, potentially use the, the tool in concert with planning processes, um, with in, process, in concert with a steering committee or public participation or the neighborhood to work with other people to generate these scenarios and be able to show those same stakeholders what the predicted results would be based on um, what we arrived at with them to input into the urban footprint tool. So it's not, I wouldn't envision it being used to, to simply present scenarios as a starting point of, of a planning process, but to develop those scenarios throughout the planning process. Does that address? I also note real quickly that um, a good example is we'll be updating our comprehensive plan here over the course of the next couple of years, and this could be you know, this is a high-level look at the city. This could, these tools could be used at kind of that scale to look at you know what what, what direction is our community headed, where do we want to go, and then after that kind of high-level look at it, get more of the details of neighborhood plans. But but you're right. Anytime you show something other than what's in a plan, there's going to be some questions, and that's what we're kind of on the neighborhood indicators, so recently some neighbors um, used it to come to the council. You might have all noticed that last time. And when I recently looked at it, it looks like it, at least on the website, isn't very up to date. And is that something that really is up to date? It's just not reflected in the website, or did I miss? It looks like it's a 2014, and it's it's because we do it every couple of years. Or help me understand. So the, the data that supports it is updated every year, is it on an annual basis. Uh, everything that comes from the ACS is based on their own cycle, which is clearly a year behind. Most of the data we use to um, harmonize this potential lag, time lag, uh, has been uh, looked at it. We try to have, and that's, we have revamping in some way to try to be more consistent in that case. But initially, the idea was to use what the ACS was providing and what else was the last update we have for the internal data. A lot of the data is city data, uh, police data, um, planning data, or other kind of source of data that has a different time updated cycle. Um, we are in discussion right now with APL to how we can really make them matching one-to-one. And so the, the, what you might notice is not necessarily that it's not updated. Some data is not really there. It, we cannot have it. Some other data is even more advanced, actually, than the one that is not there. If the ACS released the data, for example, now we have the, we just had in uh, November, uh, October, the 2015, last set, five years, and this previous year. So that's what we have to deal with. And that's not because we don't want it, because it's not there. So. We want to try to harmonize and have everything in the same time frame, which might mean that we have also to push back some of our data or uh, find a way to show more clearly those data is the last possible and the one that is what it is because we cannot have it. Um, everything is right now is most accurate that we can have them. So you can count on that, even if you find some mismatch in the time frame. I just want to note so in the next, in the Dave Wong, who is with the Applied Population Lab here tonight. That is a lot of great work for us. We will be releasing the next edition of Neighbor Indicators in the next uh, month or so, is it safe to say? So uh, we'll send you an email when that's out, or we can send all alders. But there will be a new one uh, year newer data in the next, next month or so.
the question. Alder Kruger. Um, thank you. This was a very uh, interesting presentation and uh, helpful. Uh, one of the things is we often hear about other places where, you know, the benefits of more compact growth in terms of uh, land use and energy use and so on. But this actually seems to, some of the things you were talking about, can, we can really look at Madison, how it affects us directly here. So thank you. Um, my question is about our planning documents, the plans that were created already for uh, new development, new neighborhoods, and also plans for existing neighborhoods, neighborhood plans. Um, I understand that you'll be using, we will be using this data to look at new plans, but what about the existing plans, especially plans that may be 10, 20 years old, you mentioned pioneer neighborhoods, 12 years old, I would I think that our thinking has changed in that time considerably, and given this data, would it, and this may be a decision for us, but as a, as a council, as policymakers, but I would like to hear your opinion on that, especially, you know, you're going into the comprehensive plan also to, to look to revise that. Would it be useful to um, revise some of those neighborhood plans to think about more compact development? and? Is that something we should look at? I, and then I guess the last thing is that I think there may be a, a, a dis, disagreement as to whether the plans that we already have are hard and fast rules or guidelines for development. So if you could maybe comment on that was a lot there, but try your best. Thank you. Um, I guess I can speak a little bit to the, to the first one. I mean, I would say that Basically, as you said, it might be up to policymakers to make that call as far as whether or not we would want to revisit some of the existing plans that are in place. Um, it would have to be a um, decision to go back and do that. And we have a lot of neighborhood development plans, neighborhood plans that are in place, and a lot of them are 10 plus years old. So if we did decide to you know, revisit or update those using some of these tools, um, we definitely have to prioritize and pick and choose uh, which ones we want to do that for. But um, I think certainly that these tools could um, bring a new lens, a new way of looking at some things when we are updating previous plans. Um, as far as the second question, um, I, yeah, I don't know if that even specifically necessarily relates to the, these tools particularly, and I almost want to defer that to um, Somebody else. To somebody else, if possible. Um, as far as them being advisory or not advisory, you know, the comprehensive plan is something that we have to we have to follow. It's you know adopted by ordinance, and so um, to the extent that some of our other plans are, are adopted and integrated as components of the comprehensive plan, I think you know those carry some the same amount of, of weight and. Um, need to be followed as well. As far as other plans that might not be officially adopted, I think there's there's more potentially more flexibility with those. But um, otherwise, it's something that we have to refer to when we're when we're looking at development review. Thank you, and I guess I would just leave it with the suggestion that as we're looking to develop some of these new neighborhoods, that, uh, like Pioneer neighborhood, it's still a lot of lands undeveloped, that possibly revising as, as the development process goes on, revising some of those recommendations. I know it often re requires a plan revision or amendment, but to, to perhaps increase the density of some of those areas that where it would be appropriate. Thank you. Alder Ahrens. 
Yeah, I have a few questions, uh, or really concerns about particularly the neighborhood indicators because of the lack of, especially on the census data, and I've raised this two years ago, the lack of any kind of confidence intervals in it. Uh, they're huge, especially on these small communities. And the numbers are given with this down to the dollar or percentage that gives a sense of exactness when it's really an estimate. Um, uh, so I, I think it's um, uh, misleading and often causes people to think that something is askew when really the confidence interval is huge and there's been big uh, shifts of some kind and um, uh, I don't think it's a, a um, helpful um, and often incorrect um, depiction of, of what the data may be and we don't know what it is because the samples are so small. Uh, and this is particularly the case on the ACS data. Um, the second thing, and uh, I guess this is part of a longer discussion, we're soon out of time, relates to the, um, uh, the last presentation in which I was really thoroughly confused about what the inputs were and what the outcomes are. Um, were the six items that you discussed, were they outcome data? Health, uh, demography, fiscal, were those outcome data? Those are, um, I, maybe I can scroll back a little bit um, to the example here. Those are the different modules that are implemented for our instance of urban footprint. And so what can come out of those are comparative metrics that are based on scenarios. So I can refer to this example in Columbus on this chart. Yeah. Um, if we look at land consumption, the output for scenario A in their case okay, so those is are 490 out, those are square miles of, yeah. So what are the inputs? Because what I don't get is how we could have a transportation plan mm -hmm and then have the output of a transportation plan? Well, the output for transportation would be vehicle miles traveled. The input is our current uh, metro transit system, our current uh, road network. Um, input could be a planned future system as well as part of a future scenario. Um, so we'd be able to use those inputs to generate, for example, the VMT output, um, predicted VMT in the future. And uh, at the beginning, I thought you said that this could be used at the level of a parcel? Well, the, the scenario building happens at the parcel level. So we, we could, when creating a scenario, go in parcel by parcel and um, map future uses, but when you're building a scenario, you need to take a larger area than just a parcel. Um, so you might need to take a neighborhood-sized area to generate scenarios. So the, the, the input is, is at the parcel level? Correct. The data that you're submitting is at the parcel level when we're mapping, for a neighborhood. When we're mapping future land uses, yes, we do that at the parcel level. But to generate a summary output like this, Mm -hmm. We need to have a larger aggregate area so we can have that um, a little bit more surety and not you know, be mapping just one single development. Mm -hmm. And when you say at the parcel level, is it simply the, the sort of the geometry of the parcel or is there other known factors about that particular piece of land? 
Well, in, in certain instances, for very large parcels, we might even break those up into smaller squares so we can, like for a, if there was a West Town Mall scenario, there are like four gigantic parcels for that. So if we want to go mm -hmm. into a detailed scenario for that, we might break that up into smaller parcels. Um, but if, sorry, if kid. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm getting at is um, whether there's, what I'm, other inputs about the parcel is whether there's demographic information or some other information that's related to that. Yes, not yes. just a parcel, but it, it lives on the street, and the street has this many lanes, and it has a sewer infrastructure, and the residents may be this, this, this. Yes, there there is a lot of that information that is um, integrated into building types that are used for scenario buildings. So there might be a. Um, mid-rise mixed-use building type and there are factors that would go with that building type such as dwelling units per acre, population per acre, retail employees per acre, uh, mm -hmm. office employees per acre. So those template building types have a lot of data behind them and information behind them that are included in that input when scenarios are being developed. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. There's no one else in the queue, so. Okay. your question? My question. Well, I was curious on how it's initially populated, where the data comes from. The active living index. Yes. Well, the active living index is um, came out from an MPO initial setting. So a lot of the data, actually the majority of the data, is our own data, is county data and city data. What is supporting that is a model that generally MPO uses for their modeling, usual work that they do. But we implemented and added the planning data we generally use. So it was a combination of the two of us, two entity of us working together, mm -hmm. plus the data that came from uh, the UW Family Medicine. So those three sets of data are very rarely put together, mm -hmm. and so that's where we work together to make them harmonized and harmonizable in some way. Um, and behind that, there is um, all the um, bike system that we already have in place, uh, the transit system and all the uh, metro data stable supporting that, uh, which MPO is the one, that, of course, managing that. All the sidewalks, the quality of the sidewalks, and that other part of the infrastructure that is used mostly to support the walkability component. Mm -hmm. um, we add to it all the data set that generally planning buys that is related to uh, the InfoUSA data set, which is practically every business that is recorded in this gigantic data set, usually nationally, on any kind of analysis has been run that analyzes that particular aspect, that's the data set behind the scene. Every place we looked at it, that's the database behind the scene. We buy every year. We know some limitation of it, of the accuracy and the update of that set. We clean it as much as we can. So we have the best form, really local specific, which generally happens very rarely for those indexes. And we add to it um, the population density, because that's fundamental for anything analysis related to people. Uh, which is also the strength of this component, this particular index, because generally we create indexes more related to places than people, and this is able to put them together. So that's the other part that we add to it. Again, the same kind of concept was the one used to clean the destination density I was mentioning briefly, uh, very people-oriented. So population is in there and is added to that component. 
Okay, and, and when you put businesses in, you're also, I'm assuming, putting types of businesses yes. that would be yes. relevant to neighborhoods versus... Yes. Actually, we use. really reclassify the whole system, uh, subclassifying them. Mm -hmm. The tool in itself, we didn't have the time for a demo, but it would be useful to see it, is classifying in those five main domains that I was showing. Mm -hmm. Within them, there are other many categories in that, and uh, they were... Uh, we already have the set separated that can be mapped by itself. It's clean and we are doing it for other purposes. Uh, those businesses are also um, possible to pull out. They are food-related businesses or education-related businesses. So they have this kind of category already built into it. So that was the, 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 to make this project possible was also giving us the possibility to implement the, the quality of the data that we generate by and we use. Given that this is going to be available to everyone, my, my and there's no one in the queue, so my final question is, are you, are yous, all of yous, um, going to be available for road trips? Because I would imagine that neighborhoods are going to want demonstrations on this and have lots of questions. We are piloting already. Okay, uh, good. Elder McKinney is our first pilot. We can release it now. Uh, they are trying to use it. And um, I would uh, maybe using this opportunity to somehow frame all of this that we said and maybe clarify a little bit why they are important now, but also why they are not going to completely modify our way to interact with the community. Most of the time, the conversation with the community is based on subjective somehow call it per se data without real objective data to discuss on it. The reason to put all of this together is really sit down with the community and say, this is what the data is telling us. Now we want to hear what you are telling us. And that's where the neighborhood planning, and the, the, the usual way we did the planning process is going to be supported by this. It's not substituted, it's not telling somebody what they have to do. Is telling her what is on the ground. And in fact, the active living index being piloted in other working area to really have a conversation with them based on something that is really neutral and objective. And that's the, the strength of those tools. Thank you. Alder McKinney. Thank you very much, and I apologize for being late. Um, uh, yes, we did go through this process, and what happened is in my district, uh, we did a walkthrough just to see what was in the neighborhood, and we uh, gathered some folks together. And first of all, it is a collaborative approach. And our eyes were seeing one thing, and when we did the walkthrough, the question with the walkability is, why are grocery carts being left inserted? So that was one of the complaints, is that grocery carts were being left in the neighborhood. And so when we were looking at the grocery carts, when this program walked through, they, they asked us, why are they cutting through? What is the access point? Um, why are fences being torn down? And so the question is, is that when you walk through an area, you're really looking at how can we make access more available to the community. And with that information, shared information with the community, and then I think that change could happen. I'm really excited about this process being in our district because it gave us new eyes. It gave us new eyes in terms of how far the bus station, the, the transportation,
transportation is, how far people have to walk um, to get to the bus, how far people have to walk to get to things like grocery stores, um, and those kind of finite finite things we don't look at, but as we're building community and really looking at how can we be more serviceable to the people that, with the, that live within that piece, we really do have to begin to look at neighborhoods in a more accessible way. And these benchmarks are very usable. And the key thing is that it's done in collaboration. It's not like the city coming down and said, you will do this. It is that this is what we saw. And then the bring the community in to share their experiences as well. And out of that, developing a plan that will work for the community that it's intended to work for. And so um, I thank you for that. You're welcome. I want to highlight the detail. We are helping not just, uh, Elder McKinney in their area really to collect this subjective data. We put together a survey based on this data to really understand what the community think about their access to places, their way to walk, their access to bus, and we are going to soon collecting this data, but also collecting some photo mapping because sometimes pictures are telling the story much more than words. And the idea is to give the community this tool so they can build their own story. So there's going to be really a collaboration between what the data is telling us. We don't have to spend more time on doing that because it's already built in and really focusing on listening to them. And that was the intent to have all of this heavy-loaded data available for everybody. Thank you all. Thank you.